The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Take your uh, attribute sheet, communicable attributes, and look at the front uh, sheet. I know it looks similar, but we want to continue to get a sense of the uh, big picture. We're studying in systematic theology, moving topically through the Bible. Uh, we began with um, a discussion on revelation, on how we know anything about the spiritual realm. We talked about the scriptures and the inspiration, the authority of the Bible, which is the foundation of all of systematic theology. We went from there um, to talking about the doctrine of God. And once you're talking about the doctrine of God, you're uh, soon into what we call an attribute study. Attributes are descriptions of God. Anything that we could say about God. We divided the attributes into two general categories. What are those two categories? Communicable. Communicable and incommunicable. We started with the incommunicable, meaning those attributes that are true of God and of no one else but God. Really, they are unique to Him. And we looked at those. Now we're going through God's communicable attributes and we're following our brother Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology. He's organized the communicable attributes into five subcategories. Attributes describing God's being, his essential nature, namely his spirituality and his invisibility. Um, We talked last time about how that could be a communicable attribute, but the fact of the matter is many of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, who have died, are presently invisible. I know it's hard to believe, but there they are. They're invisible. Our brothers and sisters that are up in heaven, they are spirits uh, made perfect through faith in Christ. Spirituality and invisibility. So those are communicable attributes, but they are essentially God's attributes first. Secondly, we talked about uh, God's mental attributes, uh, the mind of God. We talked about his omniscience and his wisdom and his truthfulness. And then we got into the moral attributes, and that's where we are right now. The moral attributes of God, his goodness, his love, His mercy, grace, and patience all kind of together. His holiness. Tonight, God willing, we'll go through God's peace, that God is a God of peace or order, we could also say. Then righteousness or justice, jealousy and wrath, those four. God willing, next time, again, not next week, but next time, uh, we'll look at attributes of purpose, uh, God's will and His freedom, His omnipotence. Uh, we may, may get further than that. But that's where we are overall, giving you the roadmap. Tonight we're going to be looking, zeroing in on uh, attributes 10, 11, 12, and 13. First, let's talk about God as a God of peace. You know, as I was thinking about this today, I was thinking how much we need this. We, are, we live in a frantic age, don't we? Uh, recently, uh, a week ago, I went to a... Um, a museum of sorts that had all kinds of old things, an eclectic collection of things. I'd never seen so, so many bedpans in one place in all my life. It was an incredible bedpan collection. He also had uh, an amazing pencil sharpener collection and uh, those stamps that, you know, the rubber stamps that... Uh, remember when you used to sign out books in a library and then they'd stamp the date? Well, there was a whole collection of those kind of rubber stamp things and oh, all kinds of things. Well, one of the things he had were washing machines, old washing machines, wooden tubs with kind of hand-crank agitator type things. And it was amazing to look at the mechanisms of all that. And I was thinking about how, just how hard it was to wash clothes back then. There were a lot of washing boards, you know, where you just kind of physically scrub. Do you ever see anybody wash clothes with a washing board? 
you know, I don't know if you want to admit it, you know, but yeah, you know, maybe even you did it earlier. I don't know, but, uh, you know, we've come a long way. And, um, but I remember thinking as I looked at the washing machines, those old wooden tubs and all that, and just the technology we have, why is it with all the labor saving devices we have today that more than ever there's a sense of franticness to our lives? Why, why do people feel persecuted by their schedules running from place to place? I think there's two answers. What, what do you think? What were you saying? Oh, I'm sorry. We fill it up with other things. Nature abhors a vacuum. You know, if you're going to have extra time, it's going to get filled up with something. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and it does sometimes. But, uh, you know, I, I think two things. One is that we're just not as tough as our ancestors. Let's face it. I mean, they're, they're, they, had, they were toughened by their lives, and, and they didn't complain as much as we do, you know. Um, but I think another thing is uh, just that, you know, uh, the the pressure of a high tech lifestyle is very is very anxiety producing. You know, you go in from place of the, the fact that it's possible to go to church 30 miles away is intrinsically anxiety producing, right? Because it used to be you would walk to church, or you know, it was that was it. But now the fact that it's even possible means that it may even be expected of you. You know what I'm saying? And once things are possible, more and more and more things can be expected. I remember when our um, engineering manager bought us new computers. We used to have 386, now we had 486. And he expected, because the megahertz clock on there was double, that we would put out double the amount of work. And I thought, it doesn't work like that. You know, you don't just speak to the computer and say, please design this thing. The actual computer design was only a part of the whole process. And yes, that could be done a little faster. But the expectation went up as the technology went up. So we live in a frantic age, don't we? Uh, and there's very little peace around us. And so I think it's good for us to know that our God is a God of peace. Now, it's interesting that Grudem connects it to order. What is the relationship between peace and order? You say, now, when my kitchen is orderly, I feel peace, you know? But actually, it's not too funny. There is a connection. How would you say that Grudem is connecting peace and order? That's right. We have peace within that structure. Look at Grudem's definition. God's peace means that in God's being and in his actions, he is separate from all confusion and disorder. Yet, he is continually active in innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled, simultaneous actions. That's incredible. But our God is a God of peace. I think it starts from God's incommunicable attribute of unity. God is essentially one. So he doesn't have parts within him that are arguing against each other. And so his unity leads immediately to peace and therefore to order. There's no conflict within God as to which path to take. He is perfectly ordered. Now, I think it's a wonderful thing that our God is at peace. Isn't that something? That God looks out over this world and he's at peace about it. Now, that's incredible. Within his heart, he is not troubled or distressed in terms of what way to go, that things are spinning out of control, like a truck that's lost its brakes going down a mountain road, and, and there's, there's all this anxiety about how it's going to come to a, its final rest, and that that's world history. Not at all. God is in complete control, and there is peace. When he sits on his throne, he's at peace. He's not stressed or distressed. 
what would you think if you got to heaven and found God out of sorts, muttering to, to himself, walking to and fro? I mean, that would be that would not be heaven to be around a being like that. But you know, he he says, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll show you many things now. Enter into the joy of your master. God is a joyful being. God is also a peaceful being. And so that's the peace of God. Everything's in order. You know, for me as a mechanical engineer, I think you begin to understand. I don't know if I can get this across. If I lose you, I'm sorry, but some of you will get this. There is an incredible order at the molecular and atomic level to everything. There's just rows and rows of stuff well-ordered. And I know it's hard to believe that, but, but everything in the universe is well-ordered except for demons and human beings. It's no joke. That's where all the disorder and chaos is coming from. Everything else is right where it needs to be. It's in order, right? That's our God, and that's a good thing. All right, scriptural support. Uh, numerous verses we could look at, but 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Isn't that great? God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then Romans 15.33, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Then zeroing in on this concept of order, Genesis 2.1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. What an incredible arrangement is the universe. And it's well-ordered, isn't it? Everything is in its proper place. And God put it that way. I like this. This is a little detail from Israel's history. Numbers 2.17. Then the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites will set out in the middle of the camps. They will set out in the same order as they encamp, each in his own place under his standard. What is that talking about? Do you remember? Book of Numbers. So they're, they're camping in a certain place in the desert. And when it was time to move, how were they, they to move? Decently and in good order, right? Did God tell them what the order was? Yes, he did. He arranged them all in a proper order. And so a, a certain tribe would go out first. Anyone know what tribe would go first? It was Judah. Levites were in the middle. And Judah would go first. So Judah was leading out. And, you know, that's so perfect, isn't it? So Jesus is line of the tribe of Judah and he's our leader. But it's just so beautiful. But there's order. How could two or three million people set out? Well, let me tell you, you want to see chaos. I mean, it could have been unbelievable disorder. But God is a God of order. Everything should be done decently in good order. And that's the way it was. Now, Satan is the God of this world, especially in causing extreme disorder and chaos and this is an interesting insight because he is essentially disordered and chaotic himself. He is, he is not at rest ever. He is a restless, relentless being, isn't he? And when you get closer and closer to him, you feel that same relentless and restlessness in your own soul. And when you get away from his ways in the world and get closer to God, all of a sudden things start to fall in place, don't they? Order starts to come in place. There's peace. There's an arrangement and a schedule and a structure. And these things come from being near God. You can see what I'm talking about. But God, Satan is the God of this world. And when you look at the news, the newspapers, the follow what's going on, that's the devil. It's what he does is create chaos and disorder and disruption. Um, Job 1.7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. That, that gives you the sense of his restlessness. He's just a constantly moving, restless being. Jesus said it even more plainly. Yeah, Brevard. I think this might relate there. It comes to mind in Morocco, Western Africa, or Mauritania, I'm not sure which. 
said, probably out of Operation World, that hell is better organized than the dens or the places of the witch doctors. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's, maybe oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. But there is a great deal of chaos in those dens, isn't there? The you know, and the confusion that comes. Now, we know that Satan has an order to his kingdom because there are powers and principalities and all that. So don't misunderstand. But at his essential being, he's restless. Restless. Uh, listen to what Jesus said. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. That's a very interesting thing. You look at, at uh, the demon-possessed people that Jesus dealt with. How would you characterize their behavior? What it, erratic, restless, agitated. The last thing you're thinking about when you're looking at a demonized person is peace. There is no peace because he's demonized. So there's this relentless thing. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Paul. Yeah, he's roaming on the earth, and uh, he's relentless. Relentless in his soul, too. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 gives you an indication of what he does to, to the soul of somebody that follows him. <coughs> what it says. It says, The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isn't that something? There is no peace for the wicked. And why? Because they're demonic in one sense. They are churning all the time. There's no rest. And why? Because God is the God of peace and order. And so this is something that's very important for us as evangelists, as witnesses in the world to remember. The people around us who do not know the Lord, however well they may present themselves to you, are essentially restless in their hearts. They don't have an organizing principle to their lives. They have sin churning and causing disruption all the time. Yeah. I think it's interesting how there's like three levels of this. The first level is God is the you know, order and Satan is disorder. And then the creation you have intelligent design mm-hmm. and self organizing systems, but then you have the laws of physics like, you know, the law of thermodynamics and the rate of entropy in the world and then you take it down to the created beings and you have God's people And, and I think we, what we need to do is have a real heart of compassion for the lost and realize how much a difference the gospel is going to make in their lives when they finally come to Christ. You, can't, you almost can't describe it. It's like day and night. But uh, just like I think it was Augustine who said, you know, you have made us for yourself and the heart of man is restless till it finds its rest in you. We are um, made for God and we're not going to find any rest in life. Uh, and we try many things, don't we, to placate that restlessness. But nothing will work, and actually all of those things will tend more toward the disorder, uh, more toward uh, restlessness. Um, We're going to talk more about James in a minute, but I'll just read it. James 3.16, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Interesting verse. I think it's uh, 
in some some ways a verse that many churches could put over their door and say this is our story okay <laughs> okay it is like the theme verse for many 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 churches uh, envy and selfish ambition leading to disorder and every, every evil practice it's a tragedy really when churches are characterized this way we'll get to that again in a moment god will destroy satan and all the chaos and he will bring things back under order isn't that wonderful that's what he's doing. Look at somebody read Romans uh, sixteen twenty. I just love that verse. You see the connection between the peace and the crushing. You know, it's like Satan is the god of disorder and anti-peace. You know, he's the god of churning and relentlessness and and wickedness and all that. In order for all that to stop, he's God's got to be a warrior. Basically, he's got to get out into his universe and crush the evil. He's got to crush the devil. I think he, he, what I love here is he will crush Satan under your feet. I love that. Because you know the scripture says in Hebrews 1 that God said to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But he's our enemy too. And in effect, because he's going to be under Christ, he's going to be under us as well. And so that's the beauty of it. Landis. You know, that is so true. And I, I want to pick up on that more in a minute because I want to talk about it. It's not on your outline here, but I, I should have put it in. The difference between peace with God and the peace of God. Those are two different things. And um, But Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. Um, once you become a Christian, you have in so many cases a choice concerning this matter of an experience of peace it has to do with obedience it has to do with following god and we can either do that and experience that peace or not but we'll get to that it's a great great verse and and the and the peace that jesus gives can't i don't think the devil can counterfeit i mean the closest he comes is the numbing from drugs and alcohol and all that but that's no genuine uh peace because you know you you wake up from that and and the disorder is even worse um, so I, I just think this is the one that the devil has the hardest time counterfeiting of all the things that God can give because he doesn't know what it is. <laughs> he can't counterfeit it. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is such an incredible section on what God is doing in the universe concerning this issue of peace or order. He, namely Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, isn't it amazing how death is chaos and disorder, isn't it? Because your body is all together working in a beautifully intricate way, all your systems working together. When you die, it goes totally the other way. And you become worm food, basically. And everything goes back into the earth from which it came. You know, it, it goes up into incredible complexity and order and goes back down into nothing again. And so death is that final enemy. And he will destroy death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who has put everything under Christ. And then verse 28, when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Do you see the order there? It's just unbelievably ordered. Everything's in its proper place. 
And uh, I, I look forward to that. There's just a, a beauty to it with God as the king ruling over all things and everything wrapped up together in Christ ruling under him and uh, in perfect order. Ephesians 1 talks about the same thing as well. Okay, that's order and peace. And isn't that wonderful? And for those of you that are messies, as I can be sometimes, uh, you can look forward to that. Um, how peace is a communicable attribute. Well, this is why I want to get to it. Let's read these verses. But um, first of all, understand the paradigm, okay? There is peace with God, and then there's the peace of God. Peace with God um, is clearly referred to in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have what? Peace with God, right? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, which isn't in here, but you could write it down. It says, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the peace of God. Now, what is the difference between peace with God and the peace of God? Okay, so one of them, you called it relational, somebody else called it positional. I might say those, those things in one sense are similar, but let's zero in on the word positional. You could have a position of peace with God once you have faith in Christ, right? What does that mean that you are at peace with God or more specifically that God is at peace with you? Yeah. And that is a permanent state, isn't it? It is impossible to come out of that state. It's impossible to get unjustified. You understand that, don't you? If you're justified, that's permanent. And so therefore, you are permanently at peace with God, even though you may not feel it at a given moment, right? Because, you know, frankly, before when God was at war with you, you didn't feel that either. They talk about high blood pressure being the silent killer. No, it isn't. The wrath of God is the silent killer. You don't feel it. You don't know it. You think everything's fine. You die and go to hell. You know, that's unbelievably terrifying. Most of the people, I think, don't really understand how bad it is for them. They are just blind to it. The God of this age has blinded them to their danger. Okay, but at any rate, it doesn't matter that you don't feel it. The fact is, if you have faith in Christ, if you've been justified, God is at peace with you forever. And that'll never change. Isn't that wonderful? Do you always experience that emotionally? At an emotional level, do you always experience that? When was the last time you were late to the airport for a plane flight you had to take, right? You know, they tell you be there two hours in advance, you know, or you arrive there 48 minutes before your flight and there's 600 people ahead of you in line, okay? Do you have the peace of God at that particular moment? Well, if you do, I want you to disciple me and I want you to train me on how to do that, okay? You know, it's tough to maintain the peace of God, isn't it? Okay? It's tough to walk in that experience and yet you can. Philippians 4 says, through prayer, through faith, through thanksgiving, through trusting in Him, you can experience the peace of God no matter what you're going through. You can. Jesus did. I mean, do you, do you ever see Jesus just as the, as the center, this like eye of the storm, this peaceful center uh, during the time of His trial and His execution? Everybody else doesn't know what to do. They're all you know, running around. There's chaos. He's just totally at peace. He's going to die on the cross today. And He knows it. And, and, and that's what He's come to do. And he's doing exactly what God has called him to do. Everybody else is 
you know, there's like a sense of chaos. And yet God's ruling over all that because he's going to see to it that Jesus is. Wouldn't you love to be like that? Even in the most extreme circumstances, to be totally at peace. I think he was evangelizing Pontius Pilate to some degree. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, he says, reaching out. I think it's interesting. I mean, there's just a total serenity to Christ. I'd like to experience that. That's the peace of God or the peace of Christ, and we can walk in it. Someday, though, we'll know it perfectly. Romans 14:17 talks about the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5:22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. There it is, patience, kindness, and the others. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, goodbye. I like that. Isn't that great? Finally, brothers, goodbye. Anyway, um, aim for perfection, another, another bombshell. We'll talk about that another time. Um, listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Live in peace. Come on, get along with each other, folks. Stop squabbling. The Corinthian church was so divided by factions and squabblings and divisions. He says, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. That's the peace of God. It's a sense of the serenity of God will be with you if you follow my instructions here. Okay? Oh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is there. Isn't that amazing? Who wrote this after all? I don't know. But there it is. Okay, present your request to God. Okay, good order in personal and church life glorifies God doesn't it? Good order. Well, because disorder comes from the devil and from our own sinful nature. I, I just mentioned James 3.16. Look at these words carefully. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder. What is the relationship between envy and selfish ambition, on the one hand, and disorder, resulting disorder? How do they connect? Unity. Landis? I was going to say that, you know, Philippians 2 there where it talks about the mind of Christ and uh, the ultimate of unselfishness. I mean, you can't have that selfish ambition and have the envy and all that becomes as part of that package and have the mind of Christ. That's right. Has God set up order in the church? Well, most certainly he has. How does envy and selfish ambition destroy that order? Well, it depends on who you're looking at. If you look at the leaders, envy and selfish ambition destroys the order because of the way they conduct themselves in their leadership, the way they carry themselves, the way that they lord it over those entrusted to their care, it says in First Peter, talks about that. Conversely, envy and selfish ambition destroys the followership of God's people because they don't want to follow or there's selfish ambition. And then as a result, the disorder comes. And churches have seen that and they've experienced that, yeah. Well, if you follow your example about the, the tribes and how they let out, if everybody mm-hmm. had selfish ambition, it would have been chaos. You know, because well, I want to be first. Yeah. I want to be the first to leave or lead the tribe. And if everybody mm-hmm. was fighting for that, then be ugly. nothing would have happened. It'd be ugly. Can you imagine crossing the Red Sea? You know, you got to get two or three million people across. And if there's not good order, my goodness. I mean, it could be like one of those soccer games where everybody stampedes and there could be death even involved. So, you know, the, the thing is, it's just amazing how the devil wants to destroy the good order that the Lord has set up. And so he puts seeds of division and dissension and factions and envy and selfish ambition. And then little by little, there you have disorder and every evil practice. It's interesting. What is the relationship between disorder and every evil practice? How does a well-ordered church help ward off every evil practice? 
Okay, God's in control. So I think James 3.16 merits some good meditation. I think it, frankly, explains a lot that's gone on even in this church in the last several years. Yes? One other thing, too, I think it's envy. If a person is envying a person or what they're doing or their mm-hmm. gifts or anything, that's the antithesis of the Holy Spirit given to each one mm-hmm. as he determines. So yeah. rather than seeking what God wants us to do, what mm-hmm. he's equipped us to do, yeah. I mean, if we're envying someone else or what they're doing... It's ridiculous, isn't it? Stop and think about it. Suppose you wake up in the morning and your foot has had it with being a foot and wants to be a hand today. I mean, and suppose it were allowed to do so, you know? I mean, you'd be hopping all day and what would you do with your third hand? I mean, it would be, it would be grotesque and bizarre, right? And yet this is the kind of thing where it says the foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you, and, you know, and the hand, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, you know, these kinds of things. That tears at the order that the Spirit has set up beautifully in the church. And it's well-ordered, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. All right, um, and then 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Paul, again, dealing with that factious Corinthian church, says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you sure may not find me as you want me to be. Um, I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and then finally, disorder. You see, you know, this is a, a terrible mess, the Corinthian church. And he says, look, you know, at one point he says, what, sh- what do you prefer? Shall I come in gentleness and with love or with a whip? You know, I may take, when you've got a rabble and a bunch of animals running every di- which direction, you know, you need to bring order. And that's what Paul says. I, you may not find me the way you want me to be. It might not be pleasant. So that's what the devil tries to do in a church. God works good order into us as a part of his kingdom. Uh, Romans 13.1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Is there order in heaven? Are there hierarchies in heaven? Absolutely. What do you think an archangel is? It's a ruler angel. God has set up order in heaven. Do you think the angels are jealous about the archangels? Well, the ones that were are gone. They're called demons now, okay? Uh, the other ones are not jealous at all. They're delighted to be in God's heaven doing God's work. There's no, there's no envy or selfish ambition there at all. So there's beautiful order. And then Romans 13.13 13 says, let us behave decently. That word decently means in an orderly way. So behave orderly, okay? As in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. So behave orderly. Colossians 2.5 For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see, look, how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So where the gospel is preached and believed and obeyed, there comes good order and peace. And in a church like that, a well-ordered gospel church, there is so much peace, isn't there? Uh, That's a beautiful thing to watch. 1 Corinthians 14.40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. The context there is of the exercise of the gift of prophecy. Now, the the specifics of the gift of prophecy is somewhat foreign to us, but the idea is that of an immediate word from God where God speaks and you get up and you can say, thus says the Lord. Well, you may have the sense if you've got a word like that, an immediate word from God, that that is a card that trumps every other card in the deck, right? So uh, you can do anything you want. 
And so you might have had numerous prophets standing up at the same time, each with that trump card, trying to speak all at the same time. And he said, this is not appropriate. He said, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Keep yourself in order and let the speaker finish what they have to say. Everything, including prophecy, must be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's God's nature. He's not a God of disorder. Okay? Anything else about peace? Isn't that attractive when you study that, that that's our God? I want to be near Him. I want to be more like Him. Everything is done in such a beautiful way. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I look forward to that. So does that mean there's no mess in heaven? I guess it, that's exactly what it means, yeah. Amen. That is so true. That is so true. All right, let's look at the next one, uh, righteousness or justice. You know, uh, in the English language, righteousness and justice, I think, are very, uh, we, we look at them as two different things. But as it turns out, in the Hebrew and also in the Greek, um, it's the same root word in the Hebrew for both righteousness and justice and the same root word in the Greek for both as well. So these are, these are very closely related biblical terms. Grudem gives us a definition. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what's right and is himself the final standard of what that is. Okay? He is the standard of what's right and he always acts according to it. That's what righteousness is. Louis Burkhoff uh, said this, the fund- fundamental idea of righteousness is that of strict adherence to the law. That's what Burkhoff says. But since there is no law above God to which he must adhere, we perceive rather that there is a law within the very nature of God and this is the highest possible standard by which all other laws are judged. So God has within his being a law and he follows that. It's his own nature. And therefore, all the laws of God are to some degree a reflection of God's character. You see? That's why lawlessness is not possible for a Christian. You need, therefore, properly to understand that we're no longer under the law but under grace. It doesn't mean what you may think it means. Because if the law is, in fact, a reflection of the very essential character and nature of God, what will that mean for your daily life as a spirit-filled Christian? What, what will that mean? How will you relate then to the law? You'll carry it out, won't you? You'll live according to it. Now you say, well, how does that relate to circumcision and all that other? Well, that's a different matter. But even circumcision was in some way a reflection of the character of God for its time. But we understand this, that uh, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself, these are reflections of the very character of God. They're who he is. And if you're a child of God, you will live them by the power of the Spirit. Okay? So righteousness means that God lives according to the standard and he is the standard. Uh, then um, uh, he, he goes on to define a difference between absolute righteousness, which is the perfection of the divine nature by which God is perfectly righteous in himself, and relative justice, which is the perfection of God by which he maintains himself over against every violation of his holiness and shows in every respect that he is the Holy One. He displays his righteousness through acts of justice, you see, by judging and by being active at certain times. He shows himself to be righteous that way. So those are two different things. One is the internal perfect standard inside God and the second is his justice and outgoing righteousness whereby he interacts with us. See how that works? Let's look at scriptural support first for the absolute righteousness. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.4 speaks of the rock 
That's God. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. You see that? He is perfectly righteous. Psalm 71.19 says, Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God, you uh, who have done great things. Who, O God, is like you? So God's righteousness goes up to the sky. Psalm 139.137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. So there is the internal thing and the external, right? God is righteous and therefore the stuff he spins out and writes down is righteous as well. God is righteous, his laws are righteous. And then again, your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. And then speaking of his faithfulness to Abraham and his covenant, speaking of Abraham, you found his heart faithful to you. You made a covenant with him to give his descendants, give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise, namely to Abraham. Why? Because you are righteous. What does that imply? If God had not kept his covenant promise to Abraham, what would that have implied about God? That he was unrighteous. So there is a sense we have that when you make a promise, you should keep it. When you make a covenant, you should uphold it. We have that inside, don't we? Well, where do you think that came from? Well, guess what? You're created in the image of God, right? So you have a sense inside yourself of what is right and what is wrong. And so therefore, when you make a promise, you should keep it. The difference between God and us is he knows perfectly all about that and actually does it. Okay, that's the difference, all right? Because we lie and we break our promises, but God never does. He keeps his promises faithfully. By the way, um, you could write in here uh, in such a beautiful way, 1 John 1, 9, which we talked about in Hebrews, our Hebrew study. 1 John 1, 9, you know, 1 John 1, 8 says that if we claim to be without sin, we lie and deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we've talked about this before, but it's so important you understand. The justice of God before you are Christian was the enemy of your soul to some degree, right? It was the justice of God that was coming after you. The court would be seated, the books would be open, and you would be judged as uh, written down in the books what you had done. You give an account for every careless word you've spoken. And so the justice of God would chase you to hell, basically. That's the, the issue. But now in 1 John 1, 9, it doesn't say that, does it? It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Now, how is it that the justice of God, which at one point would have thrown us to hell, now mandates forgiveness? How can that be? That it is just for God to forgive your sins. The price has been paid. By who? By Jesus Christ. And here's how it works. You must think of it this way as justice to Christ, first and foremost. Because there was a covenant between the Father and the Son that if the Son poured out His blood for his sheep, if he died for their sins, that God would not hold their sins against them. And so that he would not demand two payments, you see. It's impossible that he could demand two payments. Jesus has already paid it. There will be no second payment. It's unjust. It would be unjust. You see that? And so therefore, justice is now your greatest friend. It's going to get you to heaven. You see how that works? Incredible. The justice of God has become the ally of your soul. First John 1.9. 
and it's very much like the covenant issue with Nehemiah. would have been wrong for him not to keep his covenant to Abraham, and it would be wrong for him not to keep his covenant to his son Jesus. All right, now, in Abraham's negotiation with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, he successfully appeals to this attribute of God, doesn't he? Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, God, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. That's not, that, that's not right. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, we've mentioned this before. That implies that there's a standard higher, higher than God, doesn't it? But that's not, I think, the way Abraham understood it. And it sure isn't the way God understands it, okay? God is the standard, and of course I'll do right. I will. Because there aren't ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, actually. <laughs> there's one guy, Lot, and his family, and we'll get him out of there, okay? Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I will do right, always. You can, you can bank on it. The universe is, is, is built on the fact that I always do what's right, all the time. And so I will do it. But don't misunderstand. We have no right to question the justice of God, ever. And Job was put in his place at the end, remember? Because Job kind of murmured against God, didn't he? You know, he's like, I wish I'd never been born, you know? I, I cursed the day I was born. You know, well, that's an indirect way of kind of cursing God, but it's more, you know, subtle. I'm cursing the day I was born. Well, who was it that knit Job together in his mother's womb, you know? So at the end, Job kind of has to be put in this place, and that's, Job knows it too, doesn't he? Because he says, I repent in sackcloth and ashes, right? What's he repenting from? Well, from wrong thinking. He hadn't been thinking properly about God. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, a, a godly man. But listen to what God says to him. The Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Are you going to come and correct me on issues of justice? You want to talk to me about justice? I actually think you, human race, have been unjust to me because I've lavished blessings on you one after the other and look how you've treated me. You want to talk about injustice? We can talk. So will he who contends with the Almighty correct him? Okay, you're going to bring your little ju just standard in here. Let's see how we do. Okay, let him who accuses God answer him. Verse seven through nine. Brace yourself like a man. Get ready. <laughs> I will question you and you shall answer me. That's called judgment day, by the way, <laughs> when God questions us on issues of justice. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? That's powerful, isn't it? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Answer, no. <laughs> he knows what justice is. And then Romans 9, 20 and 21. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Now, we should rejoice that omnipotence and perfect righteousness go together in the character of God, shouldn't we? Can you imagine if God had omnipotence but no righteousness? Suppose he had all power but was not a righteous God. What would the universe be like? It would be absolutely terrifying. You'd be just existing for God's pleasure like a you know, six-year-old boy who delights in tormenting insects. You know, He just would enjoy smacking you down all the time. Sadly, some people view God that way anyway. That's just because Satan's lied to them. They don't understand. 
But the universe, if God were omnipotent but had no righteousness, would be a terrifying place. Turn it around. Suppose God were perfectly righteous but had no power with which to affect that righteousness. Just as terrifying as far as I'm concerned because then we don't know. I mean, the universe is pretty wicked as it is, right? And we don't know that God's going to win in the end. He's too weak. And sadly, I think that's the view that many of us, you know, you hear some of the explanations of 911 and all that. It's like, you know, God's up there wringing his hands and I wish I could help. I wish I could do more, you know. He, he's righteous. He would never do anything wrong, but he just really can't do much. You know, his hands are tied. And is that the God of the Bible? Absolutely not. Perfect omnipotence, perfect righteousness together in the character of God. All right. Relative justice. God demonstrates his justice by judgments on earth. Revelation 16, we'll talk about that when I get to the wrath section, but God demonstrates by pouring out the justice. Look at verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged. Do you see the logic of the angel? You are just because you judged it. By definition, the things God does are just. Now, what's he doing in Revelation 16? Well, he's pouring out bowls of wrath all over the earth. You want to read the most incredible displays of the wrath of God, you look at, at the book of Revelation. But he displays his justice. He's been waiting a long time. God has. And so he displays his justice by judgments on the earth. But the greatest problem of our salvation was how could God allow us into heaven and also demonstrate his justice concerning our transgressions? You know, he did give us the Ten Commandments and he did mean it when he gave them. And when we don't live up to them, how can we end up in heaven? That would seem to be unjust, right? When David says in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Did David have any sin that needed to be covered? Well, how could a guy like David end up in heaven? That's like a, uh, one of the like, great miscarriages of justice ever, right? Except for one thing. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And so God must display or demonstrate his righteousness or justice in the case of those that get saved, right? He's got to show somehow that it was just for him to bring us into heaven. Now, to you, that might not be a big problem or to me because we live with injustice all the time and unrighteousness, but God isn't that way. And he really means those commands that he gave and he really was keeping an accurate record of all your sins and he must give some display of his righteousness and justice in your case. And that's the cross. Only God could have figured the cross out. Isn't that incredible? And so it says in Romans 3, 25 and 26, God presented him, Christ, as a propitiation is what the word should be really, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Do you see that? He set forth Christ to display his justice. I think evangelicals just don't think clearly about the cross the way we should. God had to put Christ on display to prove he was just in saving us. We're not so troubled about it, are we? We, we, we bank on the love of God. God loves and accepts. Yes, but he's got to deal with his justice. And so he puts Christ as a display of his justice. How is Christ a display of the justice of God? That's right. There was a payment of that price. And it was a high price too. Each one of us owing 10,000 talents, you know, in God's record book. And so just as we say, God loved us so much that he sent his son and, and he, he would rather, as Michael Card put it in one song, die than live without us. Okay, that's true. 
but he'd also rather die than let you get into heaven without paying that price too. That's, that's the measure of his justice. He's not gonna, it's not going to be free of charge. There's going to be blood paid for it, and it's Jesus' blood. Now, how is righteousness or justice a communicable attribute? Now, just, just for a moment, think about it. What is a communicable attribute? It's one that we can get, okay? Is this a big deal, whether righteousness is communicable or not? It's the core of the gospel, is it not? Because if we don't get it from God, where are we going to get it? Nowhere. <laughs> And that is the gospel, is it not? David, were you going to say something? Say again. Okay. Well, that's, you know, the righteousness of God is given to us as a gift, is it? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. There's justice and righteousness. In his days, speaking of Christ, obviously, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he, namely Christ, will be called the Lord our righteousness. He's your righteousness. Jesus is your righteousness. And you have no other. And if you think you can stand before God on Judgment Day without Christ and have any righteousness to speak of, you are lost you must have Christ. He is our righteousness. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, what? A righteousness from God is revealed. Now, all it says in the Greek is the righteousness of God. But the context is clear. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which saves us. Well, how does the gospel save us? By giving us a righteousness from God. So NIV got it right by saying not just righteousness of God, but the righteousness which is from God, a gift of righteousness. Uh, you know, the other verses, Romans 3, 21 through 24, again, righteousness of God. It says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. That's the gift of righteousness. Justification is Christ's righteousness put on you so you survive judgment day. And then Philippians 3, 8 and 9 is so plain. What is more, I consider everything a loss compa compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So this is positional righteousness, just like we talked earlier about positional peace. But God isn't satisfied alone with positional righteousness. He wants you actually, in fact, to be righteous every day. That's called sanctification. He wants you to get up tomorrow and put sin to death and walk as Jesus walked right? He wants, he wants you to do it. And you won't do it perfectly, but you should aim for perfection. We heard that earlier, right? Aim for perfection every day, walking with Jesus. And in the end, he will finish the righteousness. So it will be a perfectly communicable attribute. You will be as righteous as Jesus. Isn't that incredible? As you will, in, you will be effectively as righteous as Jesus. Look at uh, chat, uh, page six, Second Peter three thirteen. In keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? You put that across the entryway. This is the home of righteousness. What does that imply? If you're not righteous, you can't get in. 
But if you're in there, you're going to be righteous, perfectly righteous. And Jesus said, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't that beautiful? All right, five minutes left. Let's look at jealousy. The jealousy of God, definition. God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. Now, when you think of jealousy, what do you think of? What's that? Envy. Envy. Is it, is it good? Human jealousy? No. Oh, almost always not. <laughs> okay. All right. It's always selfish. John Piper in the book, The Pleasures of God, spoke of this. This is from Henry Skugel. The worth and excellency of God's soul is measured by the object of his love. In other words, God is worth what he loves the highest. And so are you, by the way. The worth and excellency of your soul is measured by what you love the most, too, right? What does God love the most? Himself. If he loved anything else higher than himself, he would, in effect, be an idolater because he would be loving a created thing above himself, and he can't. And that's a weird thought, I know, but the more you work on it, the more you'll see it's got to be true. And as a matter of fact, he wants it to be true of you as well. He wants you to love him above everything else. And what if you don't? What are you called if you don't love God above everything else? You're an idolater. That's true. And so the whole thing of our salvation is to get us not be idolaters anymore. That's why idolatry is such a big theme in the Old Covenant. Do you ever wonder about that? I don't bow down to totem poles. Well, yeah, but I mean, the fact is that is, those are the two competing religions. There is the essence of loving God above all things, and then there is idolatry. All right, so God is jealous then when anything in creation seeks his place. Furthermore, he is jealous when any of his thinking creatures who could worship him put anything in his place in their own estimations, their own affections, right? He's jealous over that. I am the Lord, Isaiah 42, 8. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And then Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. There is much scriptural support for this. Exodus 34:14. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. Now that's very strong Old Testament language. His name is jealous. That means he is the picture of jealousy, all right? He's the definition of jealousy. He is a jealous God. That's a strange concept, isn't it? But it must be that way. Think of it in terms of marital relationship. What would you think about a husband that didn't really care who his wife spent time with? What would you think about him? What would you think about their marriage? What would you think about him as a man? Isn't there something wrong there? I mean, shouldn't he be jealous over the covenant relationship he has with his wife? God says so. He says so. And so why do you think God consistently puts himself in the role of a jilted husband in the Old Covenant? Over and over. He is the faithful husband and Israel is the straying wife, right? That's why he has Hosea marry um, Gomer, right? <laughs> what a marriage, you know? Constantly trying to figure out where your wife is tonight. I mean, what a tough thing. But he's always doing that. He's a jealous God. Look at page 7. Hosea 1, 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. I love Jeremiah 2. You should read it more in extent. But it says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. 
God was almost wistful about the way it used to be with Israel. Yeah. Because I'm listening, I'm thinking, but God is jealous, but it's almost a jealousy for our own best interest because mm-hmm. when we put God first, we're more content, we're at peace, we will not have peace, and we will not have chaos in our lives. So it's a jealousy for our own best interest. Mm-hmm. It's not, we think of jealousy for our best interest. Right. But God, it's a jealousy really for our best interest. Not, mm-hmm. I mean, it might be his too, but it's really for us. Well, I think this is where you see the co- confluence or the flowing together of the attributes of God. Right. God's jealousy is loving, right. and God's loving is essentially giving. But still, God is uppermost in his own affections. So, you know, it's to his own best interest. I don't know. Your mind starts to double back on itself. But God must be first in all cases. Let me finish the verses, and then if you have any questions, you can come ask me. I want to get done so you guys can get out to choir if you need to. James 4, 4 and 5, the same occurs in the New Testament. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Do you see that? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, this is a phenomenal verse. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit should be capitalized, I think, he caused to live in us, envies intensely is actually an under-translation. He is fiercely jealous over you so that if you start getting idolatrous, he will let you know. I don't know. I don't I, I can't put words. The, the word envies intensely is usually translated lust. Okay? He has a powerful sense of ownership over your soul. So that if you start to stray into other things, he will let you know of his displeasure. And you will have a sense of his grief over that. He's a jealous husband. Now, how is godly jealousy a communicable attribute? Well, when we are converted, God's glory should become uppermost in our own affections. Anything, therefore, that dishonors God should provoke us to a godly jealousy. Paul demonstrated that toward the churches he was working with in two cases and probably many others. 2 Corinthians 11.2, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. When you start straying into idolatry, Paul says, I feel jealous about you because that's not what you're supposed to do. And I promised you to a husband, namely to Christ. And then he says, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? So he took very seriously the Corinthians' walk with God. All right, God willing, next time we'll look at wrath. Any um, questions? Yes, sir. Okay, I think that 1 Corinthians 13 envy means I see something good you have and want to take it from you for myself. That's what human envy usually is. I I see you have a good thing, I want it for me. This is a whole different thing. This jealousy means I want God to be first in everybody's affection, you see. And as our brother just said, that's going to be good for everybody. So it's so different. God's jealousy is he knows we're healthiest when he's first in our own affections. The universe is certainly healthy if he's uppermost in his own affections. All's right with the world and in good order when that is the situation. And when it's not, he feels jealousy. It's a very different envy than the envy or jealousy that 1 Corinthians 13 is weeding out, which is very self-centered, saying, I see you have a good thing, I want it for myself.
That's a covetous kind of thing. It's a great question. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the study we've had tonight. And we ask in Jesus' name that you would multiply uh, the things that we've learned. Father, help us to understand them properly. Father, we thank you for the mystery of your word. And we thank you for the depths that it takes us through. Father, be with uh, each one of us as we go out from here. Help us to be faithful to witness this week and to lead others to Christ. Invite them to Friend Day uh, and just um, to be an instrument in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.